Welcome to Jiri Snacks, snackable episodes about the Jiri exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable Jiri course that includes everything you need to boost your Jiri exam. A full textbook, tons of Jiri questions backed by our memory enhancing algorithm, a built-in study planner, a machine learning essay grader that grades your essay prompts instantly, and of course, plenty of full practice exams. You can try our course out for free by going to achievable.me, and if you like it, use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout. Now, today we've got Kaylin Grace Apple from Accepted Consulting with us, um, and really excited to have you on the show. Do you mind just introducing yourself real quick? Yeah. Thank you so much, Tyler, for having me on, and thank you to everyone for listening. My name is Kaylin Grace Apple. I'm a third-year PhD student, almost candidate one week away. And in history and African American studies at Yale, I also am the founder of Accepted Consulting and Accepted Society. I founded Accepted Consulting amidst the pandemic in 2020 to focus on providing non-traditional and first-generation students with resources to and through higher education. So we start with community college students looking to transfer universities, as well as graduate admissions. And Accepted Society is an online community space for academic-minded individuals. So this includes students. We have professors, postdocs, PhD students, but we also have independent researchers that just want a group of people to nerd out with. So that's a little bit about me. Great. Yeah. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic today, uh, which is how to make graduate school work for you, right? And I think the first thing to start with is why wouldn't it work for you? What are, what are the things that maybe people, when they kind of are like, I should go to graduate school, don't really realize or think about when they're first figuring it out? I think it's the mindset. So I, many people that I talk to about graduate school, when they're first considering it, or that they've known somebody that has gone to graduate school, or they just kind of generally have this uh, the stereotyped image of what graduate school will look like. Majority of them think of it just as a continuation of one's education, which it is, but it is seen as just kind of an extension of your undergraduate time and your undergraduate training. And instead, the mindset that I recommend and the mindset that I went into graduate school with is that this is a job. This is a professional training course. And it is also a program that provides me with a salary for the exchange of my labor. Um, That is both my intellectual labor as well as my labor as an instructor, because you typically act as a TA, so a teaching assistant or teaching fellow, or even an instructor of record, depending on how your program is set up. And So thinking not of graduate school as this kind of extension on the back end of undergrad, but instead actually seeing it in a step in and of itself, that is part of your career, that it is not the thing that is just the thing holding you back or put or preparing you for the career to start five, six years from now. But instead that this is a stepping stone within that journey in and of itself, it is part of your career development. And I think I came into that mindset because I had had professional experience beforehand. And so every step of my education, even undergrad, I just thought of this as, well, this is an additional thing on the resume in the way that I would also view adding a new job onto the resume. And changing that mindset, I think, allows 
for one to open up the opportunities for, for example, seeing yourself as a full-fledged adult that is working mm-hmm. this particular job in order to also get this type of training that will then prepare you for the next job. And also seeing it as also op- opening up opportunities for other types of schedules and other opportunities to meet people that you wouldn't otherwise have if you were in a traditional nine to five. And so I think just kind of shifting the mindset around the way that we view graduate school allows us to think of all the possibilities that it might actually lend us. Right. Well, because I think that um, particularly for the graduate school programs that people apply to almost immediately after college, right? Like they don't maybe go into the working world. There's maybe a sense that it's just kind of more college, but college, I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking from my own personal experience here, but it feels like college is a little bit more laid back than graduate school. It depends on how you, it depends on how you go about it, I think. At least for me, I was thinking of this is a per- this is a career progression. This is another point in time where I actually have to uh, have certain assignments in. So college has all of these different markers of success and feedback, and and you graduate, and then people ask you, "Oh, well, what's next?" And with graduate school. People approach it in a very similar way to college, but the way that I try to think of it instead is that, for example, it's kind of like a contract job. It's saying, okay, in this amount of time, you need to hit this particular marker and you need to complete this particular assignment. And that is doing good for that university because they put out materials for incoming undergraduate students to say, oh, we have all these great graduate students who are TAs and we have these professors that are working on these incredible projects. And that's a lot of what is then marketed outward. But what's happening on the inside is that you are developing an intellectual project that is then one intended to move your field forward, but two is also being marketed and is being considered a kind of drawing point for the university. And so I think the graduate students really need to see their value within the institution and also see this as an opportunity for growth because there is so much flexibility within graduate programs as to how it is that you want to go about it in ways that Mm -hmm. even undergrad didn't necessarily have because you had to be in lectures all the time. Yeah, I mean, graduate school to me strikes me as sort of you get to develop your own coursework in a sense right because you're basically like this is my research project or this is my you know thesis or something that i'm digging into yeah um and you get a certain amount of control over that right i mean i think that the maybe the question is how do you you've talked about a couple of different aspects right you talked about like your own personal career development you've also talked about like how marketable is this project right you want this project to be something that at least, you know, hits the right words on your resume at a minimum, right? But preferably gets you some clout. Um, how do you kind of manage all that or like set yourself up for success in that way? I think it's partially about what kind of mindset you have going into it. I have noticed two primary ways of of establishing oneself in a graduate program many of the students that come directly from undergrad that or that just don't have a bunch of 
professional experience in my mm-hmm. This is very anecdotal, but in my experience that there's kind of the student that comes in and is letting the coursework kind of define their research and define what direction they're going to head in. And then when it comes time to select the dissertation, they're looking at all the papers that they've written and all the things that they find interesting, and they're really trying to develop a project out of that. And that is one approach, and many people have done really successful work with that approach. The second type, however, I think is slightly more strategic, and this comes from people that often either have other professional experience or they take they took extra time between the master or they did a master's or whatever it may be that they they somehow are coming to the program at a more mature stage, whether that's age, experience, whatever it may be, and the way that they approach their graduate studies is thinking about the outcome. It's not just about, oh, well, I have to hit this marker and I have to write a prospectus and defend that in front of my committee in order to go write the dissertation. They're thinking 10 years down the line and they're thinking, okay, what kind of scholar do I want to be known as? And this is where I think of, I think that academics really need to learn branding and marketing skills because if you know what kind of scholar you want to be known as and what it is that you want your work to be considered how you want it to be considered, then you make very different moves and you move through the academy in a very different way than if you're coming in and kind of watching these steps in front of you and you're just kind of following one step at a time rather than seeing the long-term trajectory of this as a career. And there's there's many more things I could say on the matter, but I'll kind of put a yeah, couple well, on I there. Mean- I don't know. I'm I'm here to I'm here to listen, right? I think that it the the career aspect of things is something that I even I mean, you know, I didn't go to graduate school, but I in my early twenties in particular, um, I was doing exactly what you just described. I was kind of like thinking about what's the best next move and not thinking about like the long term implications of said moves, right? So I'm actually yeah. quite curious. I mean, you said you had more to say. I'd, I'd I'm quite curious kind of how you can start to think about that, especially when you're, you know, maybe you're a college junior or a college senior right now. And this, it, it's particularly because you maybe haven't been in the working world, it's like hard to visualize. Yeah. And I think that most people think of what their first career is going to look like, or they set they set these really kind of concrete goals. And especially when you're going into college or if you're going to graduate school, the next five years are pretty well laid out for you. But when you're leaving college and you're starting your career or you are in graduate school and you're looking at a job market that is that is limited in opportunity within the academy, then I think it's a little bit more difficult to set those markers. And so instead of saying, for example, in the next year, I want to be here and then five years from now, I want to be here, saying instead okay, let's just picture some random point in time. It could be five, 10 years from now on a random Tuesday at like 10 a.m. What do you want to be doing? Who do you want to be surrounded with? What kind of things do you want to be concerned about? Or like, what do you want to be thinking about? And that, in my opinion, is a much better question than, oh, what career do you want? Or what job do you want to have in five years? Instead, think, okay, generally, what do I want my life to look like? in a realistic sense, but also just being a little bit, you know, imaginative. 
and thinking to yourself, okay, so I have a general idea of what that kind of looks like. Now, how do I work towards that? And instead of it being this linear line of, okay, well, I have to get this promotion here, and then I have to hit this mark on my CV then, and I need to get this publication out by this point. Instead, you're thinking, okay, so what does it look like in order to get to point X? It opens up the possibilities of all the different doors that go along that winding road that leads you to that quote unquote destination, but the destination is a little ambiguous. And the the reason I say that about in terms of thinking about graduate school and when you come into a graduate program, thinking about what you want your career to look like in, in the long term, for example, I would think to myself, okay, what kind of research do I want to be doing? What kind of historian do I want to be? And I knew that I still wanted to be studying law. I still wanted to be studying the British Atlantic. I wanted to be focused on slavery and specifically the the role of Black women. And that generally has helped guide my decisions along the way. Because even if I, there are things that I'm really interested in, for example, I have a document on Notion that has all of the different research ideas that I have and all of the different things that I could do. And when opportunities arise along the way, that I'm able to say, okay, does that kind of align with what direction I want to be heading in? And does that align with the type of historian that I want to be? And if yes, then yes, let's take that opportunity and let's try to make that work for me. And if the answer is maybe not, then then it's a lot easier to say, turn that down and then keep your blinders on. And that's where I say it's really important to think about not the first job out of college or not the first job immediately after finishing a PhD, for example, think instead when I'm like well established in my career and I've made a couple of different moves, like where do I want to be? How do I want to feel? Who do I want to be around? And I think that that helps you make decisions today that put you in a much happier spot in the long term. Right. Well, it's really about opportunity cost, right? It's kind of what you're highlighting. Yeah. And, I, and I think that it is probably true also even within graduate school that you probably get you know, this professor wants your help with this thing and this TA could use your help on this project. And and eventually, you know, you're doing four different things that are not really relevant to what you're trying to do and you're not making progress towards your goal, right? So I think this is that's a really, like the wise thing to recommend people. And I feel like the other, like to kind of maneuver back a little bit towards the core topic, when you feel like you've got your vision um how you know the key is to have the graduate school support that vision obviously the most direct way for them to do that is for them to let you like basically take that vision and make it like what your whole graduate school project or thesis or experience is all about but that doesn't always get to happen that way right so yeah how do you kind of you know when you feel like you have your direction how do you work the graduate school system to help facilitate that yeah. So I'll give you a kind of anecdotal example. When I was looking at my long-term trajectory, my long-term career, and I looked at what mattered to me and what I wanted to be doing in 10 years from now, and this is an ambiguous point in time, but let's say it's 10 years. I knew that I still wanted to be doing research. I knew that I still wanted to be publishing and that I wanted to be spending time in the archives and that I also wanted to be creating media-based scholarship 
So this includes YouTube YouTube videos, documentaries. I wanted video elements um, as a means of showing my research to a wider public. And so then the way that that shows up in my day to day is that I'm looking at the people that are going to go onto the tenure track and realizing that that is the pipeline that has been set out for me. That is the timeline that is expected of me by anybody that hears that I'm getting a PhD, let alone the people here at Yale. But when I actually look at it and I look at the things that I value, I realize, no, actually, the tenure track doesn't quite suit that vision because the tenure track really rewards written publications and at volume, and it doesn't reward media-based scholarship. That is not to say that I don't want to write my scholarship, but that I also want to be creating multimodal content that relates to my research. Mm -hmm. And that kind of work is one, not rewarded and is actually seen as a distraction by many departments and many institutions. And so Mm -hmm. instead of, for example, spending my time focusing on getting on three different research jobs and on making sure that I have three publications by the time that I graduate, instead I'm thinking, okay, well, I want to be known for my multimodal scholarship. So how is it that I develop the written publications that are part of that, but also how do I develop my my skills as an editor, as a filmmaker? These are things, these are these are skills that I would not be thinking about if I were just to follow the traditional track that academia kind of sets out for you as a PhD student. And so the way that you kind of make it work for you is you say, okay, what's the long-term goal? And then what is it, how is it that I make sure that I am acquiring the skills and the experiences and the network to make that vision possible? And also, how is it that I communicate with the people around me? And how is it that I move through the academy so that way people know me for this skill and know me for this interest? For example, when I've, back in the fall, I had up until this year, been very adamant that I was going to follow the traditional academic track. And then when I finally had this realization that no, actually doesn't quite fit. I actually had a meeting with my advisor and I had meetings with other people in the academy where I said, I'm not sure about the tenure track. Here are the things that I really want to be doing with my career. And this is how I want to be doing them. And from that moment forward, for example, when there are multimodal projects, my advisor sends me those opportunities and people around me begin sending me sending me those opportunities. And they let me know about like various events and things that are going on. So when you move through the academy with a kind of understanding of what it is that you want out of it, not only does the academy actually shape opportunities to fit what it is that you're looking for. Um, but you also learn what to prioritize and what not to prioritize. Right. Well, and it sounds like you've got supportive advisors in in that realm too, which is really nice. I Not at first, actually. The way that I went <laughs> about that conversation, I think that I, I'm in a very traditional field. I'm in history. And in history mm-hmm. in particular, most Arguably people the most think- traditional field. Indeed, indeed. And <laughs> most people, the assumption is that you're you're going to go into academia, you're going to go become a professor, you're going to work in archives, like you're going to go the kind of direct route that makes sense for a historian. Mm-hmm. And 
what I realized was that it wasn't quite what I wanted and also wasn't quite what I was good at. Like I'm I'm really good at the work that I do as a historian, but I'm also really inventive like filmmaker and stuff like that. And so those were things that I wanted to value and I wanted the academy to value me for. But when I was conflicted about what I wanted to do, then I would get into challenging spots where I'd be in conversations with people within my department, for example, or within when I go to conferences and all the conversation goes to is, oh, publications and making sure that you are marketable for the academic job market. But when instead you're coming into that conversation and saying, well, here's what I really want and here's how I'm going to leverage the PhD to do that, the way that people react to it is a bit different. And I think it's just how about it, how you approach it. However, there are unsupportive advisors. There are people in the academy that are very, very traditional in the way that they view a PhD and its applications. However, my hope is mm -hmm. that over time, with more examples of students that are using the PhD to create careers that they really love, whether that includes the tenure track, whether that includes traditional academia or not, that hopefully the title turn a little bit. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think that it's, it's really interesting that you, I mean, part of the reason why I asked, Oh, like I'm surprised you had supportive advisors because I kind of wasn't expecting you to. And then it turned out you really didn't initially. Right. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's gotta be pretty, a pretty common challenge for people that want to kind of carve their own path in a graduate school program. Do you have any advice for handling those conversations or just kind of, moving people and moving them off of their expectations a little bit to something more of what you're looking for? So my rather harsh kind of candid advice is that you have to get about two steps in. Like you can't just go to an advisor and say, well, I'm thinking about maybe doing this. Say, this is something I'm really good at and that I really would like to do and I want more opportunities in. And here is how I see us working together to make that happen. Because when I, for example, had gone to my advisor and had gone to other people at Yale, for example, and, and had mentioned in passing or my YouTube channel would come up, for example, I would almost wear it as an embarrassment of like, oh, this is something that's like a distraction. Like they think of it as a distraction. I should feel ashamed of that. When you go into right. a conversation and you are carrying that shame you are going to be shamed for it in a way. And not everybody, like some people will be really supportive regardless of, of how it is that you present it. But what I've noticed is instead, if you say, yeah, this is something that I've been working on, I've been committing a lot of energy to over the years, and I think I'm really good at, and I've seen it perform in these ways, sometimes they just don't know what they don't know. And especially within the academy, if you're doing something that's a little bit different, especially in the space of social media, that you have to provide the context for them because the context that they have largely uh, grown accustomed to is seeing social media as a distraction, as something that the young youngest generation is just really addicted to rather than seeing it actually as a tool. And instead, if you can show to them that actually there are various ways of viewing this type of skill set and that actually it can be applied in these ways to reach new audiences or to actually get your book to perform better on the on the market 
that's another way to begin positioning yourself. And so if you can go into it after having already done a few, like gone a few steps in and gotten a bit of experience and developed a bit of confidence, then the way that you begin talking about it just demonstrates to somebody else that this is something that they might have had misconceptions about and that you're you're quite confident is actually something that you can do, but it was also something that they should know about. Right. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, I think that um, in general, it's one of the I, – I still kind of wonder how I got my confidence, honestly, right? But like I, I would never take it away for anything at this point because you can do so much more when you show up with a confident attitude and you can get away with a lot more than yep. that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get away with if you just roll and you're like, this is what I'm doing and I'm doing it. And people are like, okay. Right. Versus if you're like, ah, I don't know, they're going to tell you no, because that's not what they understand. Yeah. Or if you go into it and you're saying like, well, I'm thinking about doing this thing rather than having proof of concept. You mm-hmm. show up talking about the thing in a very different way. If it's something you're already invested in, then it's something mm-hmm. that you're thinking of maybe doing. Because most of the time, the the doubt will come when somebody says, well, I have this idea. And right. nine times well, out of ten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ideas are cheap and educa- execution, excuse me, is uh, rare. And then also, like you were going to say, nine times out of ten, you'll have an idea and then you won't act on it, right? Um, this exactly. is, you know, all ideas all the time. It's not personal to you. So they're just going to be really skeptical unless you show up already having done it with, like, some good progress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I really like this this advice and this whole kind of conversation i want to maybe shift it now as we've kind of we've gone talked a lot about sort of um you know making graduate school work for you from sort of your vision for your career and your life perspective Um, but i'd love to also cover kind of like the brass tax stuff right um because i think that you know a big part of it for instance something that probably came up for you as you were trying to do your YouTube channel and videography work and then also be a graduate student is like managing your schedule, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what's what are some tips that you have for just like, you know, making sure you keep time for yourself and your own interests and your own uh, pursuits? So there's a theory and I can't remember exactly what, it, what it's called, um, but essentially it goes that whatever you have on your schedule will fill up whatever amount of time that you have. So for example, let's say that you have a chore to do your laundry and you know that you need to get that done before dinner, but you have like two hours to do it. You're not going to get that done in the first 20 minutes. It's somehow going to span that two hour period. And with being a PhD student, and teaching, developing my research, running an international team of 12 people, <laughs> three businesses. Ultimately, it just comes down to really distinct time management and boundaries. And the thing is that this is also coming from a position of remarkable privilege, being an able bodied person who generally is quite energetic 
I'm also more inclined to take on a lot. And so this isn't to say that this is something that everybody has to do at all. But if you are looking to, for example, have a side hustle or to have time with your friends or have time to travel, for example, there are ways to do it. You just need to be able to set those boundaries within your within your time in order to make that work. So for example, I each week looks a little bit different. I'll get comments on my YouTube videos all the time. They're like, how much how many hours a day do you read? How many how many days a week do you work on the PhD? And it varies. There are some times when the prior when the priority has to be the research and the PhD and the grading and all of that. In which case it's it's just 24-7. But that also means that when I go and focus solely on the PhD for a week, then I can take two or three days off because of the way that this the structure of my program is set up. And so I can manage to slot in different things. So for example, having time to travel, the academic calendar makes it very easy to set those kind of markers and boundaries because of the breaks and the finals and whatnot. So you know when there's going to be ebbs and flows. And so you can kind of predict it in advance and then plan your life around those ebbs and those flows. Take some take some learning and take some some adjusting, but time management is just seeing what it is that I want to prioritize at any given time and then making sure that I set the boundaries in order to ensure that those that those priorities have enough time in order for me to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Right. And I mean, you listeners wouldn't know this, but um, I sent Kaylin an email once and her autoresponder came back. I only check emails on Mondays and Thursdays, so I'll get back to you on one of those two days. And I thought that was really novel. Um, I mean, it's a good example of kind of how you can you can set boundaries. I think that there's a lot of incentive, probably, you know, and it'll come from your professors or from um, even, you know, if you have a side hustle, it'll come from whoever you're doing it with or whatever. Um, but there are going to be people that want your you 24-7, right? They're going to be pulling mm-hmm. you in a lot of directions. And so it's up to you to be the sort of the, the boss of your own calendar. Um, yeah. And then you'll be amazed at how much you can get done. Yeah. And also as much as people push back on this, I've had conversations with junior faculty who have so much service work that they have to do, and they are required to publish an enormous amount per year, plus have graduate students, plus teach, plus everything else. And they still te- they still are able to treat their jobs like a nine to five. If you set those boundaries and you set those expectations with yourself, there are ways to make the schedule work for you. And I think that my educational path has been a very clear indication of that because there are one and a half days a week that I focus on my businesses and the rest is on the PhD. And I try to take about one full day off a week. Mm -hmm. It is possible. It is not necessary if you don't want it to be, if that's not the goal for you. But for me, that was something that I really wanted to commit myself to and make it work. Yeah. Well, and so then the last sort of uh, component here that I have on my list of things around graduate school is is dealing with the the money aspect of it. Yeah. Um, And I mean, it sounds like 
you've got your own income streams going with the businesses. Um, but most of the time, correct me if I'm wrong, um, unless you're actually in a PhD program in an apprenticeship type situation, you don't usually get paid when you go to graduate school, correct? Usually depends on depends on the program. So PhD students in the United States, almost all programs are funded, which means that you have either at the very minimum, like your tuition covered. Mm -hmm. Other programs get your tuition, your health insurance, your fees, as well as a stipend coverage. This varies depending on the university. Some programs have less, some have more. Yale is one of the best funded programs, especially in the humanities in the country and in the world. And so the way that that goes is that my I don't have to pay tuition. I get healthcare coverage. I do have to pay for dental and other ad- additional healthcare coverages that I believe the university should be paying for, in which case the union is currently fighting for those resources. Mm-hmm. But then we also get a, a living stipend, and the living stipend has increased gradually over the time that I've been here. And the first year that I started the PhD, I was making no money on YouTube, and I was saving everything that I was making from Accepted because I wanted to reinvest in the businesses and I wanted to be able to hire. And I lived completely on the stipend. That being said, I was able to move to New Haven and I was able to, for example, like purchase furniture because I, during the pandemic, worked a job for six months in order to save up as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. But the living stipend was feasible with living in New Haven. I was able to live alone. I was able to live with my dog. I did not have a car because a car was a little outside of that expense bracket. But I was able to make a living off of the Yale stipend. Mm -hmm. And the decision to monetize my YouTube channel and develop the businesses was one, because I really just generally like building businesses. (laughs) But two, because for me, financial security looked like having multiple streams of income. And this is where I caution a lot of people when they watch my videos, because, for example, they'll say like, oh, well, do you have to have that much money? Or do you have to have multiple other jobs? There are many people in my program that do not have any additional work that they do. They don't have research positions. Um, They don't have side hustles or a side job that they do. There was a point in time when I had, I think, 10 different streams of income, and three of them came from Yale, because two of them were research positions, and then the rest was, was YouTube and whatnot. And I say that that's because of my sense of financial security, and I think that that relates to one's relationship with finances. And that goes back to your childhood. And it goes back to the psychology of how it is that you relate to money. But for me, having multiple streams Mm -hmm. of income is what makes me feel the most secure. And what I love about the way that PhD programs are set up is that they are flexible enough, especially for domestic domestic citizens, domestic students, um, to be able to work an additional 10 hours outside of the PhD. Every program has different requirements, though. So for example, Yale has a limit that you're not allowed to work more than 10 hours a week outside of your PhD. However, I do freelance work, so it's a little ambiguous. But 
there are ways there are ways to work around it. However, I will add the caveat that there are other restrictions, and I don't want to paint a false picture because, for example, for international students that are on a student visa, they can't work outside of the outside of the university. In which case, when I have clients that are international students and are looking at PhD programs in the states. I try to point them in the direction of programs that one, have really solid stipends, but two, have research opportunities so that way they can make additional income within the institution because that is not in violation of their visa. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like um, you've really got to, like, you will hopefully get a stipend, but then you've really got to be proactive about figuring out even before you get to the school or before you even apply like what your opportunities are going to be to make money there and what kind of lifestyle you want. I don't think just to be frank, I don't think most people are going to be able to create a YouTube channel that makes money. Uh, That's pretty hard (laughs) or consultancy also hard. But I think that the, the actual like research opportunities on campus and then maybe like a part-time internship that pays hourly, those feel like achievable goals for a lot of people. Yes. Yes. And a lot of people that I know at Yale, most people do not have side hustles that do not relate to Yale. So most, Mm -hmm. for example, become curatorial assistants at the galleries here at Yale, or they become a research assistant. Um, They do other types of administrative work. That's those are ways to make additional money. So for example, like I co-organize a working group. So we have a reading group that is a combination of professors from Yale and beyond, as well as graduate students. And because I co-organize that, I get a very small stipend per semester. So there are there are ways to figure out the system. However, what I recommend to anybody applying to graduate school is make sure you do your research in advance. And this is why we created the course that accepted was because I wanted to discuss all of these aspects of the admissions process that people should be looking out for that aren't discussed nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm curious. Um... How do you go about that? I just, maybe I'm naive, but I just didn't think that you could call up the admissions office and be like, hey, so how am I going to make money when I get here? Or is that a normal question? I wouldn't recommend doing that. But what I would do is, for example, (laughs) look at the working groups and look at how they're funded. Go look at what research institutions are at that in that program, and also go see what kinds of job listings are available. Because most universities have an internal... Uh, publicly available, but an internal kind of job listing site. Uh, The third thing is to talk to current graduate students within that program and ask how it is that they make additional money and what type of positions that they might have. And then when you get into the institution, if you've then applied, is also to ask like during those interviews or when you're considering whether or not to accept the offer, what kind of opportunities there are available for additional research and for additional funding um because the the stipend oftentimes is not flexible there are some institutions where this is there's there's a little bit more leniency and you can negotiate but most you can't in which case then what you do is you negotiate by saying i want to ensure that i have other opportunities in order to make additional money for example research positions so there are Mm -hmm. ways to navigate it (laughs) Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then um, do you just kind of, as we wrap this topic up, do you have any kind of, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we covered or any parting thoughts on making graduate school work for you? 
I think the one thing that is a huge benefit of graduate school, especially as a humanities student where I have to travel for research and the ebbs and the flows of the academic calendar, make it so that way you can really make your personal life kind of work around school. So, for example, I met my partner while studying abroad, or not studying abroad, but I was doing research abroad last summer. And then entered a long distance relationship. And now I get to go do research back in the UK because of the way that my program is structured. And there are ways, for example, to work in travel by applying to grants that allow you to go do research abroad, or for example, like applying to conferences and things of that nature. Uh, This is also obviously quite dependent on the way that your program is funded and how it is that you have access to fellowship funds and what your research ends up looking like. But I've had a lot of really exciting opportunities to see my friends a lot more than I think I would if I actually had a traditional nine to five, because Mm -hmm. of the flexibility of the program. And because of the flexibility of the academic calendar. And so oftentimes, I see a lot of discourse online on Twitter, for example, about graduate students being really dissatisfied with, for example, seeing all of their friends in their nine to fives and going off and having relationships and getting to kind of meet those milestones that we think of as these markers of adulthood. And while financially you might not be able to meet some of those markers, there are other ways to ensure that your personal life is just as fulfilling, if not more fulfilling, in a program uh, in graduate school. And it really depends on the resources of your program, but also seeing this as an opportunity rather than something that is restricting you from living your adult life. I think that it, this this actually works quite well along with it, so long as you see it as an opportunity. Well, and just, as it sounds like as long as you're proactive about making the most of it, right? Like, if you know that your finals are over in May, and then, you know, you're, maybe your next thing doesn't start till June, like, you got to plan that vacation in January. Right. But you can really, I think as long as you're being thoughtful and proactive, I think you can really get a lot done yeah, and a lot of living done. Right. It sounds like you've had a lot of fun experiences. Yes, I have. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been Jerry Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Kaylin Grace Apple from Accepted Consulting. And Achievable has a great online Jerry course that you can try for free at achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off.